Thank you all for being here this morning. Um, if you haven't met me yet, I think everybody has at this point, but my name is Matt Atwell. I'm the associate pastor at Riviera, and I'm happy to bring the Word of God as we continue our series on the book of Genesis this morning, and we find ourselves in Genesis 14. And if you got a bulletin this morning, which were right outside the door, there's also a half-page outline in that bulletin that you feel free to follow along, and there's blanks to fill in and places for you to take notes. And you can always take those home, too. There's discussion questions on the back of them or reflection questions if you don't have anyone to discuss them with. And, and there's also all the scripture references and things, you know, so maybe even keep them in a file folder somewhere. You come back, you're like, I remember they taught about this one time, and you can go back and reference those. But the title of the sermon this morning is Rescued from My Own Stupidity. You didn't know that I was telling your story this morning, did you? <clears throat> All of our stories. You know, consequences of our decisions are inevitable in life. Even though many kids are growing up in homes and going to schools and playing on sports teams without consequences, they will come eventually. Even though many adults are doing as they please regardless of the law, they will not escape consequences forever. And as Christians, we often find ourselves being the voice of reason when it comes to consequences of our decisions, right? We understand that discipline is necessary when raising a child. If you spare the rod, you spoil the child. That's what Scripture teaches. In fact, clear boundaries and consequences are immensely beneficial to children and society as a whole. Things just go better when there are properly communicated expectations alongside necessary repercussions for not meeting those expectations. Furthermore, God's word instructs us on accountability and church discipline. Heck, Paul even said those who don't work shouldn't eat. Rules and consequences protect us. They protect children from getting themselves killed. They protect kids from becoming spoiled brats. They protect students from being released into society unprepared. They protect society from crumbling at the hands of those who refuse to comply with the law or whatever rules they may need to follow as employees. They protect churches from being overtaken by sin. They protect Christians from walking into sin un, well, well, without interference. Thus, while we, we do find ourselves being advocates of rules, of discipline, of consequences, we also end up in a very ironic and kind of awkward position because we are the people on earth who best understand grace. The gospel itself is a message of avoiding consequences, is it not? So how easy is it for us to find ourselves saying things like, well, you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. Or play stupid games, win stupid prizes. But then thanking God every day that he doesn't treat us that way for our own sins. Christians truly have an interesting road to navigate, right? We, we recognize the value of discipline, consequences, uh, but on the other side, also grace, mercy, forgiveness. And, and so it's not always easy to live between those two tensions, but we must, and we must not let go of either one because the same God who grants forgiveness for our sins also brings judgment. He brought judge, judgment on the whole world three times in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So God, he is neither heartless nor spineless. And we shouldn't be either. Why am I talking about all this? 
Well, I'm talking about this because today we're in Genesis 14 where we find a story of one man who went and saved another man from the consequences of his own bad decisions. And so let's read that story. We're going through the whole chapter of Genesis 14. I'm going to read this for us. Again, I'm probably going to butcher some names, but it's okay. In those days, King Amrapel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Kedor Leomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemeber of Zeboim, as well as the King of Bela, that is Zor. All of these came as allies to the Sidim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Kedorlimur for 12 years, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedorlimur and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade and Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and lined up for battle in the Sidim Valley against King Kedorlaomer of Elam, king title of Goim, King Amrapel of Shinar and King Arioch of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the Sidim Valley contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eschol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlimer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheveh Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, they can take their share. Let's pray. God, we praise you 
for who you are. We praise you for, thank you for giving us this, this word, Lord, for preserving these truths. We thank you for uh, just what you will bring into our minds and our hearts this morning. Help us to see what does this mean and what should we do with it. We pray that we would love your word and that our ears and our hearts would be open and that you would use me to, to bring glory and honor to your name this morning. And so thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about how this whole ordeal came about to begin with. Now, what, what I read and what the commentators um, that I've <clears throat> read supported the view that in chapter 13, Lot lived near Sodom. All right. But by chapter 14, we see clearly that he had moved into Sodom. And Pastor Toby taught last week out of the park how Lot came to be in that region. He and uh, Abram and Lot were traveling together, but they needed to separate because their herds needed space to graze and there was conflict arising between the families. And so they needed some space, right? You ever need just some space in your family? They needed some space. And so Abram gave Lot choice. Hey, you choose which direction you go. You get the choice of land. And Lot chose the direction that looked better to him. And the story of Lot is really a great illustration of how sin works in all of our lives. Lot's heart, it was bent towards selfishness. It, he, he was greedy. He made his choices based on what his flesh desired. And so, yeah, he, he, the land that he looked at and went to, it looked luscious. It looked bountiful. But little did he know, or maybe he did know, that it was full of sin. And you know what? The path of sin is appealing. It is. Satan is no fool. He doesn't entice us with vegetables. He seduces us with sugar and fat. And Lot found himself caught up in a world of sin and trouble because he chose the land that looked better on the surface while Abram was living safely and securely in what would be deemed as the less desirable land. And church, the let, let's say the metaphorical land, or maybe better put, the road that we choose to enter as Christians might not look as desirable on the surface. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. You see, many people are not tempted by our gate because they don't want to give up the sins that they love. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Wait until you're married to have sex? Uh, and, then, what, and, and then stay with that one person until they die? Uh, nah. Well, put software on your phone and your computer to keep you from looking at porn? Mm -mm. No thanks. Give thousands of dollars back to the government when you discover that you made an error on your taxes? Uh, not interested. No. Mm -mm. 
Die to yourself every day. Pick up your cross. No, I'm good. Thanks. But little do they know that whatever you give up, you will gain a hundredfold. As Christ said in Matthew 19, then Peter said in reply, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Oh, Peter. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So we get to say, hey world, you know what? You go ahead and keep your money. We'll say generous. You go ahead, you can have your promiscuity, we'll keep our marriages. You can have your power, we'll stay humble. You can have your so-called abortion, we'll keep our children. You know what, you can, go ahead, have your best life now, we'll save ours for later. Amen? So we, we must reject what appeals to our flesh and discern what, what appeals to the Holy Spirit inside of us. Because it's outrageous when we try to excuse sin because it looks good or it feels good to us. Lot, he really could have spared himself and Abram and everybody involved the trouble. Right? The whole thing could have been avoided. But he didn't. And we, we would be lying if we said that we couldn't relate to that. Instead, we find Lot no longer on the outskirts of Sodom, no longer near it, but now he's just right in the thick of it. And that's how sin works. The path of sin is progressive. We might not first jump directly in the pit. Instead, we'll park nearby. Right? Lot decided to get close to this sinful city, and before long, he found himself in it. And we can debate how righteous or unrighteous Lot ultimately was. I'm not so sure myself. I know that God ended up saving him later after he went back to Sodom. But his decision for sure led him down a very troublesome path, and it would lead his family down a sinful path as well. In fact, he would end up losing his wife because she loved that city. And when we get to that passage, I'm not going to go into it today, and I don't know if it'll be me or Toby Preaching on that passage, maybe it would be good to talk about how we navigate living in a sinful city while still protecting ourselves and our families from its influences. Oh, school. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> That's one way that we're, we're trying to do it, homeschooling. But Lot played loose with sinful influences. And we do the same things. Do the same things. A Christian man might not find himself immediately in the adult store, but maybe he's sneaking glances at the billboards when he drives by. A past alcoholic might not walk into the bar or liquor store yet, but maybe they're parking in the parking lot for a little while. You won't start out in bed with another man or woman, but you might start at lunch with them. And so when we find ourselves stuck in a sin that we never thought we could commit, we, we can usually trace it back to a time when we allowed ourselves to fall into its gravitational pull. 
We play with fire, as Proverbs says so eloquently. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Satan's scheme is to entice us with something appealing and then to lure us in progressively. It's not like one day you'll be someone who doesn't struggle with something and then the next day you're a full-fledged addict. It works in stages. For Lot, the first stage was to selfishly and greedily pick what he thought was the better land instead of giving respect and honor to Abraham. The next stage was to move nearby a very sinful city that would be a bad influence on his life. And then at some point, he decided to move in and surround himself with all of that evil and idolatry, which I understand may seem hypocritical and ironic coming from someone who chose to move to Eugene. (laughs) But I don't see that Lot's heart was following the Lord. I don't see Lot as having a missionary attitude uh, going into Sodom. I think the multiple stories about Lot show us that his involvement with Sodom never went anywhere good. As Christians, we need to be constantly evaluating our lives. We need to make sure that we're not being pulled in by sin's gravity, that we we need to look at the things that we struggle with and say, hey, have, am I moving closer to sin or am I getting caught up in what I'm seeing as small sins that are actually leading to something even more? Are we parking outside its doors? Are we stealing glances? Are we playing it out in our minds? And we should know that sin is not only what we do externally, but it happens inside of us. Are we sitting on our televisions watching and being tempted by the very things that we're trying to avoid in our life? Are we compromising on boundaries that we put in our lives to protect us, thinking that we don't need them anymore? That's a huge temptation because those of us who have conquered, made a lot of progress against sins in our lives, realize that the times when we fall back into them are when we get too confident in ourselves. And as many have said before me, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go and cost you more than you wanted to pay. So that's kind of uh, my second intro. (laughs) But I wanted to cover how, how did, like, why did all of this happen? And it came about really because lot of lots of choices. But let's get more into the meat of this chapter. We have this King Kedorlimmer who came out to put down a rebellion, and he was successful. He and his allies put this rebellion down, and they grabbed some loot along the way. But unfortunately for them, they didn't just grab loot, they grabbed Lot. It's okay to laugh. And someone managed to tell Abram what had happened. And this is where the story gets interesting. We know what happened before. Abram gave Lot his choice of land, and Lot chose Uh, to greed and selfishness instead of respect and honor to Abraham. But not only that, now Lot had moved into Sodom. He's let himself fall into the heart of this evil, sinful city. And I wouldn't have been surprised at all to go to this chapter and read that this messenger showed up, told Abram what happened, and then he watched Abram burst into laughter. Oh, serves you right, Lot. That'll teach you to be a greedy little punk. Uh, You made your bed, you fool. Now you've got to lie in it. Play stupid games, 
win stupid prizes. And I just pictured like a, a room full of men just bursting into laughter. But now we've got to erase that picture from our minds because that's not what happened at all. Instead, Abram does something really quite unthinkable. He takes 318 guys and he leaves to go up against these four kings that had just put down a rebellion uh, of five kings. And now up until I started studying for this sermon, I'll admit this story never really stuck in my mind very strongly. When I uh, think of Abram or Abraham, I always picture a sometimes foolish and scared but ultimately faithful man. I don't picture a warrior general. But this story brings out a side of Abraham that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture. It wasn't that long ago that he was a man who was so scared and faithless that he lied about his wife and essentially let her be prostituted for his own safety. And now he's going to take this small battalion and go up against four kings' armies? What changed? His faith was growing. We see it even before this. He had faith. You know what, Lot? It doesn't matter which direction you choose. God's going to provide. And now he has faith. You know what? It doesn't matter how outnumbered we are. God's going to take care of it. And his faith doesn't come from wishful thinking. He doesn't just think, well, I, I, you know, he's not just a fool, a naive fool. He had real promises from God, and he believed those promises. He's like, hey, if God's going to make my descendants like the sand on the seashore, then I'm not going to die on this rescue mission. And we can ask ourselves, do we really trust God's promises? Because if we do... You know what? We will make some seemingly foolish decisions in life sometimes too. That doesn't make sense to the world. Now, none of us have a promise that your descendants are going to be numerous, so you could still die at any time. We don't have that one, but we have other promises. We know that God will not abandon us. We know that whatever we sacrifice and give up for Christ now, we're going to gain a hundredfold in eternity. We know that God's word will not return void. We know that we can be pressed but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We know that people can destroy our bodies, but they have no power over our souls. We have many promises from the Lord that would change the way we live our lives if we truly believe them. And Abram believed God. And so that explains why he was not afraid to do this. But you know what it doesn't explain? It doesn't explain why he cared to do it. Why save that fool Lot? I think Abraham understood that God rescued him from his stupid choices. And now it was time for him to act toward Lot the way that God had acted toward him. He understood and remembered God's grace, and grace begets grace. We love because Christ first loved us. Abram rescued because he first was rescued. And instead of laughing and writing off Lot as a victim of his own choices, he he probably remembered how he was spared from the consequences of his own stupid choices and realized, you know what, I think God wants to use me to do the same thing with Lot. 
And that is a reflection of the gospel and the Christian life. In fact, Kent Hughes said, As Abram was to Lot, so Christ is to us. Jesus did not sit idly by in heaven waiting for us to deserve redemption. Neither was our redemption painless. Christ left the glories of heaven to come after us. Abram left his safety and security to go after Lot. Jesus did that for us, and now he calls us to do the same thing for others. Philippians says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. It's amazing how much you can see Christ in Scripture when you really look closely, isn't it? All those things that we read back in the Old Testament that maybe they don't say the name of Jesus, but they're pointing to him, they're reminding us of the same story. After rescuing Lot, though, there is something that we we need to cover Abram is met by what has become a very mysterious biblical figure. This guy named Melchizedek. He kind of shows up out of nowhere, receives a tithe from Abraham, blesses Abraham, and then disappears. Never to be heard of again in Scripture, at least not in any stories. Genesis identifies Melchizedek as a priest of God, which is super strange because it's the first time the word priest comes up in the Bible. And we know that later on the priesthood would be established under the Mosaic Covenant and with the people of Israel. And the priest would always come from the lines of Aaron through Levi. And literally, though, this guy, Melchizedek, there's four verses about him, but somehow he's a priest. Somehow, before the tribe of Levi even existed, And somehow Abram recognized that Melchizedek was actually greater than he was and gave him a tithe. And what makes this figure an even bigger deal is what we find in Hebrews 7, which we're going to read a lot of. For this Melchizedek, this is the, so you got Genesis, you got those four little short verses. Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere, never hear about him again. Till we get to Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Remember that word, resembling. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? 
And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I know that's a lot, but I felt like it was necessary to read at least that much to get a good context of who was this guy, Melchizedek. And I'm not going to dissect everything that we just read from Hebrews 7, but we need it. So who was this guy, Melchizedek? Well, some people think that he was Christ. He was actually a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus himself. But... There's no reason that we must believe that. I don't believe that the text directs us that way, and it's not necessary. Others think it might have actually been Shem, because he lived for a long time. But there are good reasons not to believe that either. In my opinion, the best explanation is that Melchizedek was a real earthly king in the time of Abram. In fact, he's identified as the king of Salem, which is generally understood to be Jerusalem. In fact, Todd was saying this morning, Jerusalem is New Salem. And Salem also means peace, as we read, but there's no reason to believe that it was just a metaphorical place. No, it's a real place that also had a name with meaning. And so if Melchizedek was actually from Jerusalem, it couldn't have been Shem, because that means Melchizedek was a Canaanite. And also, when Hebrews talks about him not having a genealogy or father or mother, I don't believe the best explanation is to say that the writer is saying he literally has no father or mother or genealogy, but that there was nothing recorded about. He has no priestly line. I mean, we've been reading Genesis. We know that Genesis is pretty good with the genealogies, right? <laughs> Moses didn't shy away from recording those things. But intentionally, there's no record of this guy's genealogy because he had no priestly line. And so, in fact, he had no priestly line other than being appointed by God. And this is important because I believe that Melchizedek is a type pointing to Christ. 
Remember Hebrews said he resembled Jesus. He was not Christ, but he resembled him. He was a figure, a priest, and a king. And no one else in Scripture would be identified as being a priest and a king until Jesus. And so one would come, and when we look back, we realize, hey, God was pointing to Jesus all along through this guy. And so there was precedent for this. I can imagine that Melchizedek caused Jews a lot of confusion up until Jewish people started realize, who realized that Jesus was the Messiah kind of clicked and went, oh, now it makes sense. Jesus was the second and better Adam. He was the second and better Melchizedek. In fact, Hughes puts it this way, all Levitical priests had to have a priestly genealogy that could be traced all the way back to Aaron. But Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy. He had no priestly genealogy through Levi or Aaron. Likewise, while Jesus' bloodline could be traced to Judah, he had no priestly genealogy. Jesus was in effect without genealogy. The point is, Jesus' priesthood, just like Melchizedek's, was based solely on the call of God, not on heredity. Jesus and Melchizedek were appointed as priests of the Most High God. Secondly, all Levitical priests served limited terms of office, no more than 30 years. But with Melchizedek, there was no set beginning or end of his life, of his priesthood. So Melchizedek reminds us that we, you know what, we have something greater. We have someone greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than the Ten Commandments, greater than the law, greater than the high priest, greater than the temple, greater than the apostles. We have God in the flesh who serves as priest and king over all creation. And furthermore, Melchizedek reminds us that while God did choose Abraham and Israel to be the vessel to carry his blessing, that blessing was not just meant for them, it was meant for the whole world. I like what Gordon Wenham said about that. Within Genesis, however, Melchizedek is primarily an example of a non-Jew who recognizes God's hand at work in Israel like Abimelech, Rahab, Ruth, or Naaman. Similarly, he may be seen as a forerunner of the Magi, Centurions, or the Syrophoenician woman, let alone the multitude of Gentile converts mentioned in Acts. They are those who have discovered that in Abram all the families of the earth find blessing. So then, to finish... The story, the king of Sodom, after it's, in, it's interesting how this story ends because Melchizedek just comes in and there's a few verses about him and then the king of Sodom comes out and arrogantly asks for the people, telling Abram to keep the loot. And I mean, what a piece of work that guy must have been. Abram just saved him from a failed rebellion. He should have been offering himself as a servant. But Abram doesn't get angry. He doesn't take it personal. He just says he's not interested. He shows his faith again. He wants his life to reflect only what God can do, not his own efforts. And so he doesn't want people to look at him and be confused about whether he depends on the Lord or on himself. Abram had wisdom and faith that this king of Sodom couldn't even fathom. The dude didn't, have, he had no idea what Abram had. And it reminded me of a song by a band called One Republic. Not a Christian band. 
but the singer had Christian influences in his life. And he writes about one of those influences in a song about his grandfather who was a preacher. And so part of the chorus says, when I was a kid, my grandfather was a preacher. He'd talk about God. Yeah, he was something like a teacher. But then there's a line, really the main line of the song that has always stuck with me. He says, he was a million miles from a million dollars, but you could never spend his wealth. He was a million miles from a million dollars, but you could never spend his wealth. So this Abram was slowly becoming someone who would eventually be willing to sacrifice his own son. And he got there by trusting the Lord and remembering his promises. And so may we all walk that path and go out into this world extending the grace that has been extending, extended to us. We rescue them because he first rescued us. He saved us from our own stupidity. And so let our hearts not grow cold to the foolishness that we see in the world. God, thank you for bringing us together. You're amazing. You wove a tapestry throughout history to bring us to Christ. God, I don't know what people do without him. I don't know what people do without you. But I know that sometimes we look at this world and it's so easy just to get cold and to get hard and and to get angry and to get hateful and spiteful. But the gospel reminds us over and over and over, hey, you've, you were rescued from your own stupidity. It's the least that you can do to go out and try to rescue others. And we know, God, we can't really rescue anyone, but we can bring them to you. We can bring you to them. We bring the message of the gospel. But this story should also remind us that the message of the gospel is not just something that we take out to the world. It's something that we need to be preaching to ourselves every day. We don't need to hear it because we need to get saved again. You've taken care of that. But we need to hear it because we forget. We forget our mission. We forget our purpose. We forget what you've done for us. So God, when we come together as a church, when we come together as families, as, as spouses, God, when we come together with you personally, one-on-one, -on -one, Lord, the gospel is not something that we have just put behind us in the past. It's something that we carry with us. So help us to carry it. Help us to carry it in our own lives and help us to carry it out into the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
for not looking at us and telling us, you made your bed, now you have to lie in it. Because we did make this bed. But Jesus had to lie in it. He chose to lie in it. And if there's anybody here this morning that hasn't been captivated and captured by that truth, pray that they wouldn't wait any longer. Pray that they would surrender themselves to the beauty of the gospel right now, this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.